So I basically almost never cover the Kubernetes and cloud native ecosystem because I'm so far away from it, but it obviously touches my life a little bit because I worked in two companies now that deploy onto Kubernetes. Anyway, so um, the GCP platform or GCP <laughs> Google Cloud Platform podcast is probably one of the best podcasts uh, of the big three clouds. And uh, they recently had Tim Hawken from the original Kubernetes team talk about GKE, which just turned seven years old. So we're here today with Tim Hawken. Tim, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi there. Yeah, I'm Tim. I've worked at Google for a long time. I work on primarily the Kubernetes project where I work on networking and infrastructural sorts of topics there. That feeds into my work on GKE and Anthos products on GCP. And we're here today to talk about GKE turning seven, which is very exciting. And I know that you, Tim, have been involved with the project since its very early days. So I'm hoping we can learn a little bit about that from you today. Yeah, happy to talk about it. Yeah, so maybe the first thing we can do is actually rewind a bit back to 2015. So in 2015, I believe that is when GKE started. August 26th was when GKE launched, yeah. Fantastic. Right on the money. Tim, could you tell us a little bit about how GKE began, specifically a managed service, a managed offering of the Kubernetes project from Google? And sort of what was your dream and the team's dream for what that could eventually become? Before this project, I worked on our internal system called Borg and its sort of successor research project called Omega. One day I had a waking nightmare where I realized I would eventually have to leave Google. And when I did, I wouldn't have Borg anymore. And I wouldn't be able to do all the things that I do with Borg. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is going to be incredibly hard to recreate. So when the opportunity came up to work on something that was very Borg-like, it was obvious to me that I had to do this. I had to work on this. I'm a infrastructure person by nature. And you know, I tend to focus on a single machine at a time. But when I first learned how to use Borg, I was blown away at what I could do with it. Things that I used to run that would take all weekend to run, I could do in a half hour. And so I wanted to bring something that was Borg-like to the rest of the world, knowing at the time that what we do in Borg is very vertically integrated and that whatever we did for the rest of the world would have to be different in a lot of fundamental ways. And so when we were building Kubernetes, we realized this is, this is a cool system. Everybody I show it to loves it, but most people don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with running it. In fact, Early on, all the slide decks that we used to show to talk to people about Kubernetes, I always had a slide that was a, a tale of two systems. It was the system that you have to run to keep Kubernetes up and going and the system that your users use. And they're two very different things with two very different roles that are attached to them. The second one is the only one that people really care about. And so GKE is our embodiment of let us handle the hard parts for you, the, the ugly running the infrastructure parts, and let you focus on running your applications. Back in the 90s, we would call this a core competency. So we want people to focus on what their business is good at and not spend time doing things that they don't need to do. Tim, I promise you that that sort of analogy or that way that you tell the story of Kubernetes in, in two tales has made its way into several presentations at Google. And beyond. <laughs> and, and beyond. Prior to being a developer advocate, I was a specialist for GK in its early days in the field. And I swear I had that in like three different slide decks. So uh, it lives on. 
And speaking of telling the story of early Kubernetes, you were recently in a documentary about the early days of Kubernetes, and you talked a little bit about your experiences there. I'm really excited to hear the way that you described it here. Like Anthony was saying, I feel like it relates really nicely to a lot of the things I'm always telling folks about the early days of Kubernetes. But there are some interesting points in that documentary that folks might find interesting as fun facts. For one, Tim, you created the original Kubernetes logo. I did. It was sort of a joke. (laughs) We were laughing about, well, if we're going to be a real project, then we have to have a logo, right? Every good project has a logo. And someone, I I forget who exactly suggested a ship's wheel, since Kubernetes is a nautical-themed joke. And I said, oh, that's funny. And I went home that night, and I drew it up in Inkscape. And I didn't know how to use Inkscape very well, so I just sort of hacked it together, and and I was able to figure it out. And I brought it in the next day, and I was like, what do you guys think of this? And I think it was Joe was like, check it in. It's good. <laughs> so that was how we ended up with the logo sort of on a lark. <laughs> nice. Can I ask, did you make the GKE logo as well? I did not make the GKE logo. We talked a lot about it. There's a distinct style to the Google Cloud family of logos. And the idea of how to do it properly eluded me. I did do a Kubernetes seven-sided wheel in the GCP six-sided background with the shadow cast on it, but they didn't want to do that because trademark and stuff. And now we don't, I think we officially don't have the hexagons anymore, though I think their lifespan continues continues on on the internet. Yeah. Well, they'll always be in my laptop. <laughs> Another comment from the documentary that I wanted to kind of surface and see how it related to GKE is that I think it was Joe who made some comments about sort of staffing early on from the Google side and sort of getting folks to work on Kubernetes. And so I'm curious what your perspective on that was as far as getting the initial set of folks to work on Kubernetes, but also GKE and and providing this managed service to satisfy that one tale of owning the system. Yeah, We started early on, it was a small group of people, like less than a half dozen people, who were sort of throwing together this demo that the folks had put together called Seven, and some of the ideas that we'd thrown together that we were calling Big Box, and trying to glue these ideas together of a managed service plus open source plus the concepts that we were exploring. And it became pretty clear that we alone couldn't pull this off. And fortunately, we had great leadership who really believed in us and said, okay, great. Well, these people are available now. Why don't you pick from the team? Who would you like to go work on this? And if you can convince them, then you can have them. And so we picked up a few of the very key contributors in that first wave, which really helped shape the product that we would eventually take to DockerCon. And that's when the Red Hat folks and all signed up and the snowball really started rolling. And you mentioned the project being called Seven in there. And I've heard that it was a reference to Star Trek Seven of Nine. Is that right? (laughs) That's right. Since Borg is obviously a Star Trek reference, Seven of Nine was the Borg that was a little less intimidating. I always love that fun fact. (laughs) And that's why the Kubernetes logo has seven sides. Ah, makes sense. And one thing that I found really interesting when I came to Google and started working on GKE. Many years after all of this, I was already convinced that GKE was a really exciting project and it was well-established and all of that. And I was getting familiar with the open source project of Kubernetes as well. And something 
that I found really surprising is that a lot of engineers at Google work on the open source Kubernetes project, especially a lot of the engineers that work on GKE as well. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between Google engineering and GKE and open source Kubernetes? Yeah, it's really important that the people who run GKE also understand Kubernetes very deeply. And so we have a lot of overlap between the people who work on Kubernetes in the upstream open source project and the people who build and run our GKE product. Initially, it was two very different teams. And it turns out that doesn't work very well because the people who end up writing the code aren't responsible for dealing with their own issues. And so increasingly, it's the same group of people but we are spread across a couple of different locations and we have different areas of expertise and the contributions over time have shifted from one team to another team. I mean, from some people go up and some people go down, but Google overall is still the largest contributor to the Kubernetes project by far. And we take a lot of pride in our role as stewards of the project. And one thing kind of in this space that I've noticed is a lot of the features that I see coming out in GKE are often backed by changes that are happening in open source Kubernetes. So there's this relationship, I guess, between GKE's success and its continued improvement and the continued improvement of the open source project as well, right? Absolutely. We don't want Kubernetes to be a thin layer that everybody then builds different products on top of. We really want the idea of Kubernetes to be visible and important throughout the entire stack. One of the main things that we hear from customers when they use Kubernetes is they love the idea that it's portable, that they can take the workloads that they've described in the Kubernetes APIs and bring them to other environments and get, for the most part, the same results. So it's really important that we work with the upstream project first to define new capabilities as much as we can so that it's not just Google who gets the benefit of it. It's actually everybody. And whether that's people who are running GKE on Google Cloud or running Anthos on their premises or running on a different cloud provider's Kubernetes implementation, we want everybody to get the same benefit from those experiences. Now, certainly there's some work that we do that is all about the integration with Google. And it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for us to try to make that portable. You know, the upstream project isn't interested in that work because it's so specific to one provider. So we're always debating for every new idea, is this an upstream thing or is this a Google thing? There's kind of this virtuous cycle thing going on here where Google is running, as we were talking about earlier, kind of the harder parts of running a Kubernetes system for a lot of different users today. And so we get so much feedback from all of those different ways that companies are using Kubernetes. And then we're able to take that feedback and turn it into useful things for the open source project for everybody to make use of, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Once you get the law of large numbers moving, you can see which things are really issues, which things are niche issues. And it helps us to focus on the things that are hurting the most people the most frequently. I think there's an interesting point there too, that bringing it back to how GKE is now seven years old, I'm thinking about some of the things that I see in my usage of GKE recently. I think recently folks have had to migrate to a GKE auth plugin. And that's like sort of breaking out into the way we want to do Kubernetes development for like GCP specific stuff. Because it used to be in tree, is that right? Yeah. In the early days, Kubernetes was a monolith, and we just built everything that we needed into the code base, and 
it was okay. And in fact, there are still some vestigial things that are littered around the code base of if this is Google, then do it that way. Otherwise, do it this other way. And we're committed to weeding those out now. Increasingly, all the things that were built in switch on vendor sorts of logic are being pluginized and kicked either out of the tree or out of the project entirely. So storage plugins is one great example. We defined the CSI standard, and we're now getting storage vendors to implement their own plugins on their own timelines. The container runtime interface, CRI, means we can have multiple implementations of container systems like Docker or ContainerD or Cryo. And you can, again, see this with the auth plugins. Any place there's code inside Kubernetes that says, if I'm on Google, is a candidate to be kicked out. I love it. <laughs> and I also do love the idea that both you and Kalsen have talked about in just that we want to standardize the way folks interact with Kubernetes and ensure that anything that's specific to Google isn't a special case, right? So I think of like the gateway API and how there's a core standard for how folks can expose their workloads by using that. But then also there's the ability through those resources to expose things that are, that are specific to Google, like uh, our multi-cluster gateway or using our Google Cloud load balancer at that level. So it's definitely reminding me of a lot of different things that we're seeing as of late in the community. For sure. You know, one of the things that's interesting, seven years is a long time in software land. The extension mechanisms that we have today didn't all exist six, seven years ago, well, even three years ago, some of them. And so over time, the way that we define these plugins and these mechanisms has evolved quite a lot. And so Gateway, as a great example, is defined entirely in terms of custom resources and extension points on those custom resources. And you look at some of the older APIs, like the earliest one is like storage plugins, the first generation of storage plugins. We didn't have custom resources at the time. And so the APIs are defined differently. And so today we always have this discussion whenever there's a new concept for pluginization or a candidate for pluginization, we have to think about, well, which examples should they follow? Which one is the best mapping for this new idea? I'm pretty sure just a couple of months ago, I saw someone post yet another of those job descriptions where they ask for more experience in Kubernetes than the project has actually existed, which is really funny in comparison and kind of contrasting with this real story of GKE and Kubernetes in general, where it's been around for a good number of years now, and it's starting to get to the point where it has all of these maturity considerations where you have to consider how the project evolves, even though it's so large and being used by so many different companies. You have to be really careful about making those decisions, more so perhaps than in the early days. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because we're about to cut the Kubernetes 1.25 release today. Yay! So that's 26 releases back to back to back. And as we cut the release, we start thinking about the next one and what's going to be in the next release. And so we've got a lot of ideas in flight about doing things that would make the system easier to use or more obvious. And we realize just how careful we have to be now because the sorts of changes that we could make in 1.2 and 1.3 are very different than the changes we can make in 1.22 or 25. And it takes more time, more discussion, more thought to be able to make these changes in a way that doesn't impact people, that doesn't break APIs. We're pretty fanatical about not breaking the APIs. And when we do it, it's almost always a mistake. And so, you know, I was talking to some contributors just this morning about 
yes, I understand how painful and tedious making this seemingly really small change. It's like a two-line code change that will probably take two years to actually deploy. And that's an interesting point on the relationship between the managed service GKE and the open source project Kubernetes, because both of them are moving forward at the same time. And like you said, there's pieces that go directly into the open source project, and there's pieces that stay completely in the realm of Google Cloud and GKE. But they still, at least the open source changes do affect GKE as well. And so when these breaking changes come, we also have to be Consider it in the managed service of how that affects the users. And so there's this whole wave of the way that it affects end users when something changes in Kubernetes these days. If we just worked on the open source project, I think we'd be a lot more cavalier about what the impact of these breaking changes is. But since those customers have my email address <laughs> and they know how to get a hold of our team and our team knows how to call me, I think it really reinforces the idea that breaking changes are not okay. And when we do make what are perceived as breaking changes, we've done so very carefully and we've defined how and when those sorts of changes are allowed to happen. I think it's really interesting to hear about the care and concern that they take to steward the Kubernetes project and GKE. Um, It's also surprising to hear how much proprietary stuff is going on behind the scenes in GKE. And um, yeah, I think it's probably one of the brightest shining spots on the GCP platform. 